Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, for that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. That it reveals you to us. That it instructs us. Lord, we need your spirit to help us. To give us ears to hear. Eyes to see. May it have its full work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're picking back up in our sermon series on the Gospel of John. We've had a couple weeks off as we've had some missionaries sharing with us on Sunday mornings. Uh, But I want to remind you of where we're at in the narrative so that we can understand this text more fully. So if you remember, John chapter 11 was the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus had heard that Lazarus was sick, and he stayed a little bit, and he finally came, and Lazarus had been dead for four days, placed in the tomb. Martha came out and was weeping and wondering where Jesus was. Jesus reminded her that he was the resurrection and the life. And Mary came out weeping, wondering where Jesus was. And he wept with her. 
And he went to the tomb to see where they had laid Lazarus. And he called him out with just the word, the power of his word, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. The people who had laid him there, seen his body, anointed his body, see this man come out. And it was the last final miracle that John records for us in the climax of Jesus' public ministry. And it's the turning point as the persecution of Jesus gets much more severe. We're told right after Lazarus is unbound, the Jews, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they plot to kill Jesus. They've had enough. His power is too great. He must be silenced. That's where we're left. It's the turning point in our narrative. It's really the turning point in the Gospel of John. Is now Jesus is turning his face towards Jerusalem as the Passover is coming about. It's six days before the Passover, and our passage begins. Jesus is once again here in Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were. All of the people who were there when Jesus raised Lazarus are here. And as Jesus comes in, it would have been customary for any visitor to come to have some sort of meal. But somebody like Jesus coming to visit, well, they are going to have a feast. And that's what we see here in our first scene. And really, we have two scenes in our passage today. We have this first scene of this feast, this uh, meal together in this home. And then we have this, what most people call the triumphal entry. Jesus turning his face to Jerusalem and coming in riding on a donkey. And these two scenes are really going to be our outline for our message today. But really there's one main theme we want to have in mind as we have been continuing to understand who Jesus is throughout John's gospel. Jesus wants to make it clear he is the coming king. Jesus is the coming king. It is true that Jesus is the one who was promised. But like the disciples at the end of our passage, like many of the people in this crowd, we often don't understand how Jesus' kingdom is going to really look like, what kind of king he's going to be. The expectations we have for Jesus and his kingdom are not always aligned with Jesus' purpose for his kingdom. With that in mind, we're going to have two main points here. The first is that Jesus' rule must be ultimate. Jesus' rule must be ultimate. He's not a subordinate king, but is the king of kings. And our second point will be this. Jesus is not the typical king. But first, Jesus' rule is ultimate. Our first scene here is one in which Jesus sits down for a meal. In fact, he doesn't sit down. In fact, it might be helpful for us to stop and think about what these feasts might have looked like. Uh, It says that they reclined at table. And if you're a modern person like we are, we might think that he got into a lazy boy and reclined and had a food tray in front of him with a microwave dinner on it, right? That's what we think of when we think of reclining at a table, perhaps. But that's not what's going on here, and it helps us understand how Mary was able to anoint his feet. And that is that uh, more like a picnic that we would have, where we would all lay around a blanket, maybe propping ourselves up with an arm, around a very short table. This is what they would do in their dinner parties. They would lay around the table, and so Jesus' feet would have been exposed behind him. And Mary comes in, and she offers this gesture. 
It's an interesting uh, thing to happen in the way in which Jesus connects it to the significance probably wasn't in mind of what Mary had when she came to do it. But Jesus is here. There's this celebration happening. Lazarus is there. They're eating together. And we're told that Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard. You guys know that pure nard you can pick up at Costco? So pure nard is this extracted fragrance from the root of this nard plant from India. And it's massively expensive, right? And, And it's no doubt, possibly even a family heirloom, that they would even have something of this value. We're told that it's worth 300 denarii. So we've talked about denarii a lot. Denarii is a day's wage, 300 working days in the calendar, as far as I can tell. A year's salary to pay for this perfume was an extravagant gift I can't imagine what we would say a year's salary would be maybe in our context $50,000 $75,000 $100,000 I don't know exactly and some of the commentators are just speculative on what that might actually be but what's clear here is the extravagance of the gift Mary understands who is in the house. She has come to the feast. She's come to the feet of Jesus, and she wants to show her gratitude. This is the man who just raised her brother from the dead. He is the one who has been sent from God. She doesn't know everything about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, but she knows one thing, and that is that Jesus is the most important person that she's ever met or ever will meet. And so she honors him with this lavish gift. Judas rebukes her for wasting such a gift. Why would you waste all of that perfume when we could have helped so many poor people? You guys ever put together a budget at your house? What's most important is usually the things you write down first. The time when Jesus was walking around doing ministry, even into the early church, and hopefully throughout the ages, one of the main things the church has been known for doing is caring for the poor. It was high on their list. Man, if we had $50,000, we could do a lot of good. And yet, it's been wasted. This is the view of of, of Judas... And of course, anytime Judas is picked up here by any of the gospel writers, he's immediately identified as this one who's going to betray Jesus, who's just terrible. But at the time, they didn't know that about Jesus. I mean, about Judas, sorry. They didn't know that about Judas. And so they probably sympathized with that idea. Yeah, of course. Maybe we should have spent that money on something more important. But Mary knows something that they do not. Mary has priorities that they do not have. Mary is offering her worship. Mary is offering this gift because Jesus is at the top of the list. Jesus defends her actions. 
He says the poor will always be with. There will always be people to take care of. We must continue to take, to take care of the poor people. We will always do that. But as controversial as it might sound, Jesus is more important than caring for the poor people. This act is more important. He is only there for this limited time. This act of worship is appropriate. It was appropriate for her to lavish this gift on Jesus, even if it meant they couldn't help as many people. What does Mary understand that maybe we don't understand? Jesus must be ultimate. It's a challenging passage as we think about our own time, our own energy, our own, you know, gifts that we have and the way in which we spend them. We always want to use wisdom, right? We're always thinking about the way we can hedge our bets and think about the future. But so often we see these characters come out in the New Testament. They give it all away. They give the last coin at the temple. They spend $100,000 on perfume on Jesus' feet. They understood the worthiness of the kingdom, that it was priceless. Like a fine piece of art that you can't put a sticker price on. Well, how far greater is the kingdom of God in bringing Jesus the worship that he deserves? The scene is also being set for us here as Judas is going to betray Jesus, right? We're, we're getting the sense in which the animosity between Jesus and the religious leaders is getting stronger. And now we're beginning to see the pieces of how it might come about. But we have the full story where those at the time did not. And as we come into our next scene, they had certain expectations of what they thought Jesus the King ought to be like. We have this little transition before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, beginning in verse 9. A large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, and they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They want to come see the show. Jesus is here. We've heard about him. And not only that, that guy he supposedly raised from the dead is here. Let's go talk to him and hear what actually happened. Did you really die, Lazarus? I mean, what would you even ask Lazarus if you got to see him? What was it like for those four days? And so there's a lot of anticipation. There's a lot of excitement happening. And the chief priests, they don't like it. In fact, killing Jesus isn't enough. We've got to kill Lazarus too, we're told in verse 10. Because of his testimony, many people were coming and believing in Jesus. I like to watch a lot of, uh, I don't know, drama shows, action drama shows. Uh, 24 is one, if you're familiar with that. Things like that, where there's kind of this good guy, bad guy, cop. But what always happens if you're the bad guy, right, and the cops finally find you and they bust in, what do you do to all of your computers? You burn the place down. 
Because you burn the evidence, and then they, they can't track you. Or at least that's how these shows, I don't know that it actually happens in real life. It's like, oh, we don't have the evidence. They burned it. Well, that's what the religious leaders are trying to do here. They are seeing the power of Jesus. They are seeing the effects of Lazarus' testimony. Now, Lazarus and Jesus aren't the bad guys in the story, but that's how they're viewing them. But they want that story to go away. And so they are going to crush it. They are going to erase it. They are going to burn it. If they can silence Jesus, if they can silence Lazarus, if they can silence the people who have seen and experienced what Jesus has come to do, well, then they can silence his message. At least that's their plan. And that's their plan, ultimately, that God will use for his good and for Jesus' glory. But it brings us to this next scene. They're watching as Jesus is now coming the next day, going into Jerusalem. Now remember, the Passover is about to happen. This is probably the biggest feast of the year for the the Jewish people. People are coming into town. It's... We were told it was six days before, now we're five days before the Passover. People are beginning to congregate, and they heard that Jesus was coming. And so they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him. Now, waving branches, uh, palm branches would have been particularly common in the Feast of Tabernacles. But it was certainly one thing in which they did all the time. In fact, The imagery of a palm tree was so ingrained in the imagery of Israel as a nation, it was on their coins. Part of the rituals they had were waving these around during the ceremonies. And so they see Jesus coming and they get these branches, they begin waving them and they cry out with a loud voice, Hosanna. Who knows what Hosanna means? Not very many people. Sometimes we don't translate all of the words in our Bible to to leave it kind of original. If there's some ambiguity of what it might mean. So that your pastors and theologians have to do some work. Hosanna means give salvation now. Or oh save us. So they're crying out to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Give us salvation now. And then they quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Of course, there's a little bit of a change in what they're saying from Psalm 18, adding this King of Israel clause at the end. But Psalm 118 is an important psalm for us to understand if we're going to understand this scene. Psalm 18 is this processional psalm. As one who is coming into Jerusalem, the king is coming into Jerusalem in the name of the Lord to render worship. I encourage you this week to read through Psalm 118 and Zechariah chapter 9, which will be quoted in just a second. As you reflect on these scenes, 
But as Jesus is going into Jerusalem, their cry is for salvation and their blessing is one who is coming in. The king who is promised to come. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm pointing to the one who is going to come and restore worship. Jesus is showing up as a king. They see that and it's evident. They want him to be the king that they want. Their understanding of what the Messiah was going to do. But Jesus doesn't come riding in on a war horse like a conquering king might. Instead, we're told in verse 14 that he finds a young donkey and he sits on it. And it's a fulfillment of another prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 that says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You know, when there's a regime change, it can be good. It can be really bad. It depends on what side of the regime you found yourself, right? A guy comes into town, a new king comes into town. Well, if you were a loyalist to the old king, you might be afraid. That's part of what this word is telling to God's people. Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. But he's coming on a donkey. He's coming in humility. He's coming not in his own strength. He's not coming to destroy you, to take over by force. He's coming in gentleness. So often we think of Jesus as being a king. We have our ideas of why that matters for our lives. These people had an idea of what the Messiah as king should be like for them. When they thought of the Messiah coming, and when they see Jesus coming as the king, and when they cry out to him for salvation, they primarily have in mind, not salvation as we necessarily think. Indeed, they understand their religious life of the Jewish faith at the time. But they wanted to be liberated from the Roman rule. They wanted a king who was going to give them their independence. They wanted David's throne to be physically reinstituted. They wanted a real king who was going to give them that place of prominence they used to have to restore the kingdom of God in Israel, Jerusalem. They were tired of languishing under the oppression of Roman rule, being marginalized, being insignificant. They wanted an earthly king to do earthly things But when Jesus stands before Pilate, he confesses to be a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. See, Jesus is coming, and he is bringing salvation now, and he is this processional king coming into Jerusalem to reinstitute worship, proper worship, but he's not doing it in the way that people thought he would. 
Oftentimes, we like to make Jesus as king in a very earthly way. We like to appeal to him and his authority in an earthly way. As I look at this passage, as I, as I look at what Mary has just done before this entrance, as I think about Jesus coming in, ultimately heading to a cross, seeing Lazarus is going to follow him into death. All of his apostles following him into death. Jesus is much more concerned with something else. He's much more concerned with that first story. He's much more concerned about worship. Because Jesus doesn't just come in to reform worship like Josiah did. Jesus doesn't just come in to tear down some Asherah poles. Jesus comes to bring the new temple. To offer the once for all sacrifice. Jesus comes to bring salvation not from any earthly problems. But from our greatest problem. Our alienation and judgment from God. Jesus is ushering in a kingdom that indeed does have implications for our earthly life. He is ruling and reigning now, and it's in an already and not yet time. But the people who are following after Jesus and who will follow him through this passion narrative to the cross and to the tomb and watch him ascend to heaven... They understand that his kingdom was about something far greater than any mere earthly kingdom. That the problem he came to save us from was not an oppressive moment. But the wrath and judgment of God. And that through his life, death, resurrection, he brings us into his kingdom as children of God. Co-heirs with him. In fact, part of Jesus ushering in his kingdom is doing away with any remnants of the old kingdom. Rome continues to be a tyrant and eventually destroys the temple. Not many years after Jesus leaves. So we think about these passages. I want to encourage us. To think about the ways in which we often place our earthly concerns so frontal in our minds and in our energy. I think we would be like Judas looking at such an extravagant act of worship and think, we could have done so much better things with that. We see Jesus as the king, and we think about belonging to him. It can cause you to be puffed up. If you're the king's right-hand man, well, all of a sudden you've got some you know, mojo in your step, and you can be this person who's got it all figured out. But as people who belong to a king who came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey... We have to remember that his rule and reign is different 
And that as we are his ambassadors, as those who represent him into this world, we come not bearing the sword. We come going to the cross. To be sure, there is a day that is coming when Jesus will not be riding on a donkey. The book of Daniel talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. But probably the most vivid is from Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus will be riding on a white horse and there will be a sword from his mouth. And he comes to execute justice, judgment, to separate the wheat and the chaff, the goat and the sheep. But by God's grace, we're not there yet. By God's grace, he has shown up to us as a king who is humble, who has shown us grace, who has bared on his own body our punishment. And it's understanding those truths, understanding who our king is, what he truly came to do that can enable us to live with Jesus' rule as ultimate, to know what Mary knew. To respond to that call that Jesus made so often to leave everything and follow after me. May he give us the grace to even stop for a moment. To reflect in all of our decisions. To reorient our priorities. To remember what kind of king Jesus is. And what it means to follow him. May we be people eager to show our devotion and worship to him that many others may even seem as extravagant. May we worship Jesus as our king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for coming as our king and savior. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom didn't come by force but through the power of God, working through weakness. Lord, thank you for Jesus coming to die the death we deserve so that we might have life in his name. Amen.